is esoteric Christianity? Is there really a secret teaching of Christ outside of the canonical texts? I don't know what you know about Christianity. We would have to talk for a very long time to clarify what this term means for you. But, for those who know, we would say that this is esoteric Christianity. civilization has developed over the last few centuries through historical, scientific and cultural processes, mainly characterized by progress and material development. Since the Renaissance, the idea has emerged ever more clearly of man as the center of the universe. Today, we see extraordinary results in the fields of science and technology. But at the same time, we see that there is a great difficulty in rediscovering the inner spiritual dimension of man. The religion of materialism and performance places gain above all else. Industrial production and mechanical construction is carried out on a large scale. Human beings becoming a means rather than an end, accept their role as simple cogs in this vast machine, often without thinking about the real meaning of their lives.
three centuries and the initial persecution of the Roman authorities, Christianity became the state religion, gradually replacing other traditions and almost causing them to disappear completely. was grafted onto the structures of the decadent Roman Empire and made Rome its center of power, becoming more a political and temporal institution rather than a spiritual one. During the centuries between light and shade, the Church of Rome has had a great influence on the history of the West, not only religiously, but also politically, culturally, and above all, psychologically. Westerners have developed from 2,000 years of Christianity, and, regardless of our own opinion, the figure of Jesus is deeply rooted in our psyche, influencing all Western culture, as well as our view of the world. But does an inner dimension, a secret and esoteric form of Christianity exist? Or did it exist in ancient times? We have to remember that for the first four centuries, before orthodoxy was claimed, the Christian world was made up of numerous schools and communities, each of which transmitted the teachings of Christ in a different way. Exotericism, from the Greek word exoterikos, external, refers to the aspect of religion which is open to all. Esotericism, from the Greek esoterikos, internal, refers to the sacred mysteries present in all religious traditions. We have to keep in mind that in early Christian communities, teachings were experienced in a charismatic way. Memories of the Master were very powerful, and we cannot talk about the differences at that time between esoteric and exoteric dimensions. Over time, however, Christian communities began to be divided up into those which lived out this teaching through pistis, faith. And those where this teaching had an initiatory character, such as the Gnostic or Pneumatic communities. Towards the end of the second century, exponents of one part of Christianity, represented by the churches of the faith, assumed ascendancy and began to speak out against expressions deemed non-compliant with official thoughts, in particular against Gnostic Christianity. All teachings judged to be unorthodox were defined as heresies. This word was taken from the Greek word heresis, which means choice or election, in the sense that a doctrine was based on personal vision rather than official teaching. One of the tools of this struggle, which began in the second century, was the theological argument put forward in Latin by writers committed to this challenge, known as heresiologists. Certain names stand out, such as Irenaeus, Hippolytus of Rome, Epineus, and Tertullian, and they are seen as the founders of Christian theology. But probably the first Christian theologians were those involved with Gnosticism. It was again these Gnostics that heresiologists directed their arguments, as well as against the adherents such as Asilides and Valentinus, who enjoyed high esteem in the Christian community. Valentinus claimed to have received the apostolistic tradition from Thaddeus, a disciple of Paul and was to be elected Bishop of Rome. His disciple, Ptolemy, in his letter to Flora, says, We too have received the apostolistic tradition by virtue of a regular succession.
struggle. Theological elements were closely connected to the desire to create a central authority in the church, a priestly hierarchy which could exercise strict control over the spiritual life of the faithful, which also had a political role, one which was totally unrelated to spirituality. From this moment on, Christianity would be marred by constant struggles and internal conflicts. This would see the systematic elimination of the losers, including masters such as Valentinus, Arius, and Nestorius. During the 2nd and 3rd centuries, in the conflict between the Gnostics, a bitter struggle took place between Christians who accused each other of heresy, with each group claiming to be the only true church. This policy of intolerance would be constant throughout the history of the church and evolve at extreme levels of cruelty. For the official churches, there is no doubt that the authentic Christian teaching is the one which prevailed during these conflicts, but this is the story told by the winners. A contemporary theologian has said that without a clearly defined orthodoxy, Christianity today would be like Hinduism, i.e. a religious tradition within which there would be a number of schools and teachers which might hold different and sometimes even opposing views. Evidently, in the Western world, this is not seen as acceptable, but maybe we should consider if it could, in fact, have been a positive development. Infatti, nonostante la definizione di un'ortodossia, oggi comunque In reality, despite its clearly defined orthodoxy, Christianity today, following many schisms, is still fragmented and there is a myriad of different cults, churches, with different names. The Christian schools of the early centuries, which were furiously attacked by heresiologists, such as Tertullian and Irenaeus, belong to the tradition called Gnosticism. means knowledge, but in the terminology of the mystery religions, knowledge meant something different to what it does today. It did not refer to rational and intellectual knowledge, but to a special experience that would allow for direct view of spiritual reality. Without a doubt, Alexandria, Egypt, was the largest centre for the dissemination of Gnosticism. The melting pot where different cultures and schools coexisted and influenced each other. Christianity arrived in Alexandria with the Apostle Mark and found in this centre the ideal ground to grow, especially in its initiatory and esoteric aspects. Among the Alexandrian schools, there flourished in the 2nd century a pagan gnosis, which combined Platonic, Egyptian and Oriental teachings and a Christian gnosis, which tried to integrate these doctrines with Christianity. The antecedents of Gnostic thought can be found in Jewish mysticism, which would later develop into a Kabbalistic tradition. In Greece, Plato and Aristotle drew attention to a characteristic that could be defined as sudden insight, which could lead to illumination similar to that described in the Eastern traditions of Hinduism, Buddhism and Taoism. By extension, we can define Gnosis as all spiritual experiences where the distinction between knower and known is removed. In a different way, 
the terms illumination and gnosis were also used in early Christianity by those seen as prominent figures by the official church. In the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, we find the expression Fatismos tes noseus, for God, who said, Light shall shine in the darkness, and light shall shine in our hearts to make the light of knowledge shine. Gnosis. Way 
to find out about the ancient Gnostics is to read their own texts. We have a large collection of Gnostic texts called the Nag Hammadi Library, a collection of Christian texts discovered in Egypt in the 1940s, making it one of the most important archaeological discoveries of all time, along with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Comparing the Nag Hammadi Library with the polemics of the Church Fathers, scholars have been able to reconstruct a stereotypical Gnostic theology, what I call a list of Gnostic cliches, for reasons I'll get into later. The first Gnostic cliche is that they believed in a dualistic anthropology. This means that they sharply delineated between the material body and the spiritual realm. They valued the soul as something transcendent and harmonious, trapped within a dirty, corrupted body. The ideal afterlife, therefore, is for the soul to escape from this body and enter the spiritual realm. Since this world is so messed up and corrupted, this means that it must have been created by a messed up and corrupted God. Therefore, the second Gnostic cliche is that they believed in a dualistic theology, one that states that there are two main gods, one higher, perfect God called the Monad, and a lower, inferior, almost evil God called the Demiurge, the one that created this material reality. The Nakamadi text called the Apocryphon of John is probably the best example of this dualistic theology. The Apocryphon of John reinterprets the creation myth that we find in the book of Genesis. Instead of God being the supreme being that creates Adam and Eve, he is a jealous and lesser God that traps humanity on a corrupted planet, hiding the keys to divine knowledge in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus, in this reinterpretation, is a savior sent from the monad to save humanity from the demiurge. He encourages Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit to attain divine knowledge, and therefore eternal life. This leads into the final Gnostic cliche, a primacy for secret knowledge. This is what we talked about earlier with the Gospel of Judas, how only Judas had a special monopoly on the secret mission of Jesus that the rest of the disciples were ignorant about. The problem with defining Gnosticism as a typology, or as a list of characteristics, is that it emphasizes certain characteristics at the expense of others. So, for example, how many Gnostic texts do you think match the typology that we just created? Dualistic anthropology, dualistic theology, and a primacy for secret knowledge. Let's take the Gospel of Thomas for an example, which is commonly understood as the most famous Gnostic Gospel. We certainly see a concern for secret knowledge. The first line of the Gospel of Thomas reads, These are the obscure sayings that the living Jesus uttered and which Thomas wrote down. And he said, Whoever finds the meaning of these sayings will not taste death. Eternal life itself depends on secret knowledge here. Other passages throughout the Gospel of Thomas talk about the individual embarking on a journey of inward truth. But does this concern alone warrant calling the Gospel of Thomas Gnostic? There is no wicked demiurge. There is no hatred of the material world. And if you start going through every text of the Nag Hammadi Library, you'll find that none of them quite fit this typology that we've created. The Gospel of Truth, for example, written by the arch-Gnostic Valentinus himself, has no wicked demiurge, it has practical moral values, and Valentinus talks about an earthly Jesus that actually died and rose again from the dead. Terribly earthly things to do for a theology that supposedly hates material existence. And this is why I use the term Gnostic cliches. They are stereotypes that are certainly evident in ancient Gnostic texts, but we should be careful not to think of Gnosticism as a set of beliefs with boundaries as rigid as these cliches. Some scholars want to throw out the term Gnosticism entirely, thinking it's just too blunt of a tool to do such precise historical work. The jury is still out on these debates, but if you're not a scholar, it's good enough to recognize that the Gnostics believed a variety of theologies that fall within one of the stereotypes that we just talked about. Of course, Epiphanius and Irenaeus never use a term quite as polite as variety. Instead, for these church fathers, Gnosticism represented a heresy. But why so much vitriol? And why does this matter for today? Heresy was viewed as dangerous or invited exile precisely because it involved outsiders trying to become insiders or insiders that other insiders were trying to push out. This infighting exemplifies a phenomenon called the narcissism of small differences, an unnecessarily complicated term that means when closely related communities, whether religious, ethnic, or political, engage in near-constant warfare because their small differences are more threatening than some distant foe. So, for example, although Gnostic theology sounds kind of weird to modern Christians, Gnostic 
Gnostic and Orthodox Christians have a lot more in common than, say, Christians and ancient Celts. Both Gnostic and Orthodox Christians affirm the existence of Jesus. They both think Jesus had some major role to play in world history and salvation. But their differences spark anger and suspicion, while their differences with ancient Celtic religions doesn't exactly spark a thriving genre of anti-Druid polemics. The point of all this is to show that you can't talk about Gnosticism without talking about heresy. The two are almost synonymous, both in antiquity and in Christian churches today. But this position doesn't exactly help when we are trying to place Gnosticism into its historical context. We're essentially siding with the baby-eating perspective of Epiphanius when we do. We can't exactly take orthodoxy for granted when we study ancient Christian texts. A time when the delineation between orthodoxy and heresy was a lot more fluid, and there was a surprising diversity of theology within Christianity itself. This concept of the narcissism of small differences, the idea that we fight our religious neighbors a lot harder than we fight anyone else, that concept is alive and well today. It not only can help us see what ancient Gnostics really were like 1,500 years ago, but it also might help us cut through religious conflict today, recognizing slander when it happens, and achieving a more nuanced perspective of the opposing party, even if they seem like terrible people to you. As always, thanks for watching, and please subscribe. Backyard Professor videos. I'm Kerry Schertz, the Backyard Professor. As I've been studying uh, early Christianity, of course you run across the various different types of Christian groups that were in existence. Jewish Christian, as well as Christian, as well as Gnostic Christian groups. And because of the, uh, because of the archaeological discoveries, such as the Gnostic texts that were found at Nag Hammadi in uh, 1945, and the Gospel of Judas in 1973, the more and more and more of the Gnostic texts come out. And now we begin to see not the pagans, but the actual Christians. We are now recognizing that early Christianity was much broader, more diverse, more meaningful, more spiritual than we have ever been known to suppose before because of archaeology and history and historical analysis has demonstrated to us that the the spectrum, I'll put it this way, the spectrum of spirituality within Christianity was incredible. Unfortunately, the church fathers did not like the spectrum being so broad. They lived in an era of what they indicated was severe persecution. And in order for the converts and for the various branches of Christianity to survive the onslaughts of a pagan world that was much stronger than they ever were, they believed they had to force a unification of thought, of, uh, of belief, of expression, a, a unity of doctrine, whereby they could cohere together as a group and survive. In some ways, it reflects a, a great disbelief in the power of God to preserve them in their diversity of faith and expression. And it shifted from a, a spiritual understanding, a spiritual basis and background, into a political, diehard, determined need to survive. Unfortunately, what they lost was the grandness of their heritage. 
what we lost, I should say, is the grandness of their heritage. For the first four or five hundred years, of course, there was no canon, there was no set doctrine. They, uh, various different churches had their own, and each, each of the different communities had one or more of the Gospels, etc. Irenaeus, of course, put that all together and said, no, there's not only one Gospel, and no, there's not twelve Gospels to match the twelve Apostles or anything like that. No, there's just four. And he limited God. He said, any revelation that comes in from now on has to conform to these four Gospels that we chose. Otherwise, it's not a valid revelation of God, and therefore, the church essentially limited God. Of course, I'm sure I can picture God. He's laughing from on high, saying, Oh, really? You think that I've given you everything in those Gospels as they interpreted the story, which is completely different from each other in many respects? Each had their own specific type of audience, their own particular situation that they wrote for, so they couldn't possibly indicate the entire truth anyway. We can't limit God that way. We like to pretend we can, but we can't. Well, one of the expressions that has come out now is this Gnostic idea. Now, there's no question that the vagaries of the Gnostics uh, are incredible. Some of their scriptural exegesis is just downright bizarre, but it's only bizarre because we haven't seen it. We're not used to it. We don't we haven't ever had it to compare and contrast. So we have grown up and gotten used to our understanding of what came down in antiquity as Christianity from the great consolidation. And we like to assume that that alone is the truth. So I want to take a look at what Irenaeus called evil exegesis. Of what Irenaeus identified as satanic scriptural knowledge. And he had to label his opponents this way to eliminate them, at least in his mind. We are of God because there's a greater majority of us. And that means there's lesser of you and therefore you're of evil. And so we have to stamp you out. That was the underlying operative assumption. And I don't think that was a good assumption at all. Unfortunately, historically, for the last 2,000 years, we've been stuck with the basis of that assumption. Now that we have the Gnostic materials, we can read them for ourselves. And that's what I'm going to do for you in this video. I'm going to at least share a couple of Gnostic ideas that Irenaeus specifically labeled as evil and satanic. And let's see what he was trying to say, because there's absolutely nothing evil or satanic in any of this stuff. And once again, I'm going to share some excerpts from you, with you, from Elaine Pagel's book, The Origin of Satan. She's noting about the Gnostics on page 167. This is a basic overview of some. Now, when we say Gnosticism, of course, we're not talking about a unified movement any more than we are when we mention Christianity. Christianity had dozens, if not hundreds, of different kinds of developed processes, theologies, beliefs, ideas. And uh, it's the same thing with the Gnostics. The, the most famous Gnostic schools are the school of Basilides and Valentinus, to name just two. There's a Sethian school and, and so on and so forth. But here's one such teaching of the Gnostics that Irenaeus specifically labeled as evil. Now this is fascinating. Gnosis reveals who we are and who we have become, where we are going, whence we have come, what birth is, and what rebirth is. What the Gnostic Christian finally comes to know is that the gospel of Christ can be perceived on a level deeper than the one shared by all Christians. One who takes the path of Gnosis discovers that the gospel is more than a message about repentance and forgiveness of sins. It becomes a path of spiritual awakening through which one discovers the divine within. The secret of Gnosis is that when one comes to know oneself at the deepest level, one comes to know God as the source of your being. 
that's a pretty good nutshell view of what Gnosis was. The Gnostics said, we are by design our inheritance. The fundamental ground reality is simply that we share in the divine. And this is what is important to know. Because once you know yourself, you know the basis of the ground of your being, God. Not just intellectually, but you come to know it in your heart. Irenaeus set it up so that he put the church between the individual and God as the mediator between me and you and Christ and from Christ to the Father. The church put itself in between us and Christ as the source of our salvation. And Irenaeus and Tertullian and Oregon and some of the early church fathers felt that it was very necessary to have this because as individuals we weren't spiritual enough. As individuals we couldn't possibly learn the doctrine of our own. It takes a church to teach us the truth. It takes a church to protect us. It takes a church to help us continue existing and grow and develop spiritually. It takes the church's interpretation of scripture for us to know how to understand the scripture. We don't have that capacity personally. Gnosis said, nothing doing. That's not true at all. Every one of us have the divine within us, and every one of us certainly have the capability. We are created by God also. God did not create us inferior spiritually, intellectually, physically, etc. God knows what he's doing when he created us. The church says, oh no, no, God doesn't have that capacity to teach you individually the truth. We must do so for you. That's essentially the difference between orthodoxy and Gnosticism. It's the difference between individual spirituality or groupthink. That's the basic difference between Gnosticism and churchism, I'll put it. On page 173, Pagos notes that the central theme of the Gospel of Philip in the Gnostic writings is the transforming power of love. That what one becomes depend upon what one loves. Whoever matures in love does not care to cause distress to others. Blessed is the one who has not caused grief to anyone. And Jesus Christ is the paradigm for this idea of one who does not offend or grieve anyone. But refreshes and blesses everyone he encounters, whether great or small, believer or unbeliever. See, the Gnostic Christian, then, must always temper the freedom Gnosis conveys with love for others. The author says, too, that he looks forward to the time when freedom and love will harmonize spontaneously together, so that the spiritually mature person will be free to follow his or her own true desires without grieving anybody else. Instead of commanding one to eat this, or don't eat that, or do this or don't do that, as does the former tree of the law, what Gnosticism does is, the true tree of Gnosis will convey perfect freedom. When Gnosis harmonizes with love, the Christian will be free to partake or to decline according to his own heart's desire. The person makes his own choice, in other words. What Gnosis does is it conveys freedom from being told what to believe and how to believe it and what to do, with the free choice of the individual to turn to God and let God guide his life. This is what the church fathers fought against in Gnosticism. And the interpretation that Philip gives, the Gospel of Philip, is very interesting with the human inclination to either have the inclination for evil or for good within each person. 
Now see Irenaeus and Tertullian, Oregon, and Lactantius, and all of the early church fathers, Basel, and so on and so forth. They externalized this, what the Jews would call this impulse of evil. They ascribed it to a malignant being, Satan. And they said, Satan is influencing you. But the Gnostics probably inherited this uh, theme of the internal desire of the person for either good or ill from the Jewish side of things with this good or evil inclination, which is also identified very powerfully in the Dead Sea Scrolls. When one recognizes this inclination within oneself, then you can change yourself for the good. This is what the Gnostics said. You don't have to relinquish your own spirituality to somebody else, to their whim and understanding. You don't have to trust in the arm of flesh of someone else. You have the capacity to make an intelligent choice yourself. This is the essential basis of Gnosis, as we now understand from their own writings. And this is something that Irenaeus and Tertullian, those guys, called evil. Now that we have their writings and we read them, we say, scratch our heads, and we go, that's evil? You see, but remember, Tertullian said, the true Christian should not ask questions. The true Christian should not think. The true Christian should shut up, sit down, and obey us, the church. The Gnostics said there's no point of another intermediary between us and Christ. We can turn directly to Christ ourselves. And this the church fathers wouldn't do. They said nothing doing. Get rid of this heresy. That's evil. It's evil to be able to make a choice. We want to force you to heaven through our church. That's a very interesting comparison contrast, you know. Joseph Smith said, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. Well, you can't prove contraries unless you do very broad research and reading and see what others say about this or that or thus and so. And you learn for yourselves the truth of history. You don't have to rely on someone else. You've got a God-given brain. Use it. Well, I'm very Gnostic in that sense. Absolutely. I side with them in that respect that I have my freedom and I'm going to use it the way I want to, to learn what I want to. I have that right and I have that God-given capacity. I'm going to use it. This is the beauty of the Gnostics. The optimistic conviction of truth is what the Gnostics were after. Now, from the Gnostic end of things, of course, we have this idea of the ignorance of error. Ignorance because we are not allowed to use our brains for ourselves. We are not allowed to read the scriptures for ourselves. No, the church said, take away the copies of the scripture out of the hands of the people. Only we know the true interpretation. Therefore, we will give it to you, and therefore salvation is through the church, not through Christ. They usurped Christ's authority. The Gnostics wouldn't have anything to do with that. They said, no, I can do this on my own thanks. I don't need you to interpret what I can figure out for myself. And this helped keep the diversity of Christianity around for many hundreds of years. Knowing the truth involves more than an intellectual process, however. It involves transformation of one's being, transformation of one's way of living. If we know the truth, we shall find its fruits within us, is how the Gnostic teaches this. If we join ourselves with it, with the truth from within here, then is how we find fulfillment. This is knowledge, the Gnosis. Know for yourselves. This is the idea of Gnosis. And, and Pagels does a very good job. That was on page 174. She does a very good job giving us the, the comparison and the contrast and the teachings of how the early church fathers wanted to unify Christianity and how the Gnostics wanted to discover the truth. Because the church would not teach that each individual is divine. 
to the church, that was false doctrine. To the Gnostic, it was obvious truth. This was the big battle. This is one of the big battles, I should say. The power of studying history now that we have far more of it, <laughs> now that we have the larger picture of Christianity, we can begin to use this as the basis for recognizing that, I mean, there are some people today who are really confused about the state. You look around and there's thousands of churches. Well, the good news for us is it was the same way back in Jesus' day, too. Everyone was struggling to understand the truth. And everyone in one form or group or another claims to have that truth. And everyone wants your attention and your allegiance. And if you can find a group that you're comfortable with, then you should. If you can't find a group you're comfortable with and you believe it's an individual process, the good news is it is. Because that is also part of the Christian spectrum. And you say, well, that's not true because the Gnostics were considered heretics. Yes, by a majority rule of people who were so closed-minded, they said God no longer speaks and everything that comes down now must conform with what we have already in the Scripture that we have chosen. No, I think there's a much better basis to figure out truth. I personally can't help it. I side with the Gnostics in this regard that Jesus really did say, ask and it shall be given, knock and it shall be opened. And I don't care if Tertullian couldn't comprehend that it's a whole lifetime process. I don't care if his mind was so small. He wanted the answer right now. He wanted the fundamental truth right now, and he thought he found it, and therefore, in good old satanic spirit fashion, he virtually forced everyone in his day to accept his version. I don't care on that basis of criteria. I am not beholden, or I am not stuck with accepting Tertullian's vision of the truth. I can find out for myself, and that's what I'm doing. In the process of learning the history of the incredible range of early Christian literature, for example. It's gigantic. It's huge. You can't believe it. Or learning the history of the different Christian movements. Learning the history of the individual mystics through the Middle Ages. Learning the history of the church and its triumphant military access to Christ. They turned him into a generalissimo and marched forth against the infidel and wiped out people in the Crusades. Well, you know, that's not my view of what the church should be about. You know, everybody has their own definition and all. I believe God's greatness and goodness is that he has the capacity to accept all worship, no matter of what kind. It's only humans who seek to limit God. I don't accept the early Christian church leaders' ideas that we humans do not have the intelligent capacity to make our own spiritual choices, and so we need a mediator to Christ. It's just like I've said before. The church is not what was crucified on the cross and shed its blood for my sins. I don't need a mediator between me and Christ. I need to turn to Christ. To me, that's sensible, quite frankly. The early Christians believed that the only way to have group solidarity was to crush out the diversity. Could you imagine if they would have said the same thing about the world and cut down every kind of tree in the world except the only one true tree, say a pine tree? Could you imagine how miserable that would be? Could you imagine if they would have declared only one color is the true color of God and all others are satanic inspired? And therefore, since we, as a major group, like the color red, everything must be red, and they tried to turn the world into solid red. Everything. Could you imagine how silly that would be? Or if they would have said, music is God's creation, but there's only one true musical instrument, the banjo. 
than an orchestra can only have banjos, and there's only one true song, so that they can only play one true song. Could you imagine how boring that would be to go to that orchestra and listen to them pluck all together in unison on all one instrument, just one song? True beauty is found in the diversity of the world. Because what does it do? What do the heavens declare as well as this grand creation? Now, this is opposite of what the Gnostics taught. This is where I completely disagree with the Gnostics. They taught the creation was evil, that it was bad, that matter is evil. I don't accept that at all. Peter and the Clementine recognitions taught Clement. We do not think matter is evil as such. Amen, Peter. You're right. Matter is not what's evil at all. It is through the diversity of the beauty of the different colors that we enjoy the fall season with all the different colors of leaves on the trees, the different shapes and colors of rock, the different animals. Could you imagine if the church would have declared there's only one true animal of God, the chipmunk, and wiped out all the other animals? What kind of insanity is that? Will we allow them to say the same thing about spirituality, though, or about interpretation of the scripture, or even about scripture? Why do we allow that when it's as obviously patently observed there as it would be if they did that in the world? It's astounding that diversity of thought terrifies churches. It always has. Isn't that amazing? And yet God says in Isaiah, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. God created the diversity. He created our eyes so that we could contemplate the various thousands and trillions of different shades of color and shape and kinds of animals and plants and rocks and planets in the sky. The space telescope, with all those magnificent pictures, do not show that heaven is all uniform and the same color and the same shape. No, the glory and beauty of it all is because of the diversity. Not the unity, but the diversity brings out the beauty. It's okay for individuals to be individuals and find their truth. But for whatever reason, this really makes churches nervous. They don't want thinkers. They want believers. But you can be a thinker and a believer all at once. Perhaps I'm just not getting it. And that's very possible for sure. But as I explore these themes, I'm sharing them with you in my videos. I'm thinking out loud. I'm sharing the grandeur, the wonder of it all, when you study history that you're not going to get in church. Church doesn't teach you the history of much of anything. What it wants to teach you is an interpretation, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the final complete picture. God isn't contained within a human interpretation of God's Word. There's much more to God than just what's in print. That's my message. It's fun to explore that greatness of God. Truth, Gnosis, or Heresy.
truth, gnosis, or heresy, a mashup of videos into MP3 format, uh, conveying the history of the early Christianity and the Gnostic and esoteric forms that were suppressed, oppressed, and decried as heretics by the mainstream orthodoxy that tried to basically stamp them out. Obviously, they were unsuccessful because these forms are coming back to the fore. Call it karma, whichever you will. But these are to encourage a deeper study in the scriptures and God's word and not just to take a so-called teacher of the scriptures word for it, but to hear the voice of God himself and to open your ears and your eyes to the truth of history Until next episode, this is Mystical Gnosis. Have a blessed day.